my name is Kyle Boyer. I am a principal at my consulting firm, KV Consultations. I also serve as vice chair and scholarship chair at the Cannabis Chemistry Subdivision with the American Chemical Society. And I'm also actually recently employed with a new company called Tagleaf, and I am the director of product science there. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I'm really excited to be sitting down with somebody who I'm newly acquainted with, but we have a lot in common, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of good stuff to talk about here. I'm with Kyle Boyer. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Thanks for having me today, Jason. Been a real big fan of what you've been doing. I see all of the leaders in the space on your podcast, so I'm honored to be amongst them. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for following along. Yeah, it's been a fun journey so far, um, coming across all of the, the great people I've been able to interview so far and happy to have you a part of the team. Um, so for those of you, I mean, some people might be familiar with some of your work. You're pretty active on social media, doing education and trying to bring attention to cannabis science. You're also involved um, with the uh, sort of cannabis chemistry arm of the American Chemical Society. Um, but for anyone that maybe hasn't heard of you before, any of your work, do you mind kind of just talking a little bit about um, kind of uh, your background, where you came from, how you got into cannabis science, and then we'll kind of spin off from there? Sure thing. Um, so uh, I got my degree in neuroscience from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 2012, and probably not the typical thing that a neuroscience degree uh, or a neuroscience major would be doing. Um, but I used to throw electronic music events during my time at UCSC. <laughs> um, and so this, don't worry, this leads into how I actually got started <laughs> in cannabis science. Um, but basically, I had this event at uh, the local venue there called The Catalyst. Um, we brought out Grammatic and Grizz for any of your listeners who are familiar with electronic music. And um, there I had a friend who helped me with my shows. And he's like, you know, I got this guy you're really going to want to meet. He runs a cannabis lab in town. And, you know, I think you guys would really hit it off. And, of course, I, I was a big fan of cannabis all throughout high school and college, uh, made my own dabs and whatnot. Um, so when I met this guy, you know, I explained my background. Uh, at the time, I didn't have a ton of lab experience. Um, but, you know, I was about to graduate, and I really mm -hmm. wanted to stay in Santa Cruz. So basically, here I am, you know, at my show, and I'm like, Hey, dude, you could really you help me out by giving me a job <laughs> so I can stay in town. Um, and anyway, we we ended up hitting it off. Um, and uh, so, he, you know, I followed up with him and uh, ended up sitting down for an interview at the lab two weeks later. And uh, they basically hired me on the spot. Again, I was still very fresh without much lab experience. So started off as a lab technician, um, worked my way up the chain, became an analyst, and then became a laboratory manager around 2014. Uh, maybe it was 15. Either way, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a while ago. Uh, but this is all before the age of compliance, right? So um, I actually ended up leaving SE Labs in 2016 before all the compliance stuff started to kick in, but we were working towards ISO 17025. Yeah. Um, so I got a lot of background on that, ended up doing some trainings uh, through A2LA on ISO. So uh, pretty well versed in that at this point. But uh, after leaving SC, I ended up doing a brief stint at a transdermal company, um, but uh, it didn't work out at that company. I ended up leaving within about six months. And at that point, 
there weren't a lot of people with knowledge about cannabis testing. Uh, yeah. So that's when I started my consulting firm, KB Consultations. Um, so I worked with a number of labs in California, getting them set up. Um, and then from there, actually in the fall, um, so that would be fall of 2017. Um, I, so sidebar, I uh, always had been a fan of Kevin McKernan's work. Um, mm, I was like, yeah. wow, somebody is finally bringing real hardcore science to cannabis. Uh, I would see his posts on Facebook and we would exchange literature online. And so, um, and I had met him at the first CanMed at Harvard Medical School in 2016. So, you know, we had each other on, we were on each other's radar basically. Um, yeah. And the time came that, you know, he was in LA and it seemed like they were actually actively hiring at that point. Um, and so while sales wasn't exactly what I exactly wanted to do, right. I definitely mm -hmm. want to stick on the science side, but Hey, I can do sales for a company that's bringing real science to the cannabis industry. I mean, of course, right, not yeah. that the other science isn't real science, but like hardcore molecular biology sequencing, you know, this kind of thing, uh, yeah. that really excited me. So I ended up having dinner with Kevin, um, and you know, they sent me an offer as, uh, their West coast sales rep, uh, probably about a week later, two weeks later. Um, and so that started my, my stint at medicinal genomics. Um, and I was there for two years. So first year was in sales. Um, it was a little tough because, uh, it was prior to compliance actually kicking in. So telling mm -hmm. someone that you have to buy QPCR <laughs> after all the mass spectrometers and all the GCs right. and LCs and all the other things, you know, it was yeah. kind of a tough sell. Um, so anyway, I ended up migrating out of sales, uh, after about a year. Um, and at that point they transferred me into a field application scientist role. Um, so that was just supporting the customers, but, um, I was also really interested in the work that they had been doing with, um, sequencing different, uh, culturing platforms, as well as, you know, the Amplicons come out of the QPCR and the cannabis microbiome. So yeah, I was yeah. pretty well versed in that and I actually gave a presentation for the May edition of the can journal club in 2017 or maybe actually, no, sorry, it was 2018 at that point. Um, and, and yeah, Kevin was on and he was like, man, that was awesome. Like, you know, he like, you should really grab the mic whenever you can. Cause I mean, <laughs> I have full support for that. So at that point started speaking all over the place about the cannabis microbiome and, uh, different, the differences between different microbial testing methodologies and what they were finding. Um, so yeah, that kind of kickstarted my career on the speaker circuit. Um, and also during my time there, um, we were involved with Dash, which is a cryptocurrency that actually, this is during the crypto boom, right? So everyone remembers when right, Bitcoin was yeah. like, like 20K. Um, and at that time, uh, all this money started flooding into the crypto space. And so they were giving out these Dash grants for researchers and really whoever wanted to do anything. <laughs> um, they were just like, give us a proposal. And, you know, we'll vet it amongst the master nodes. So that's people who own, I think it's over a million dollars in Dash currency. And the master nodes will vote to decide who gets the funding. So uh, Kevin drafted up a grant. I reviewed it. Um, and then, yeah, we after, you know, a few weeks of watching the votes, we, we ended up getting it. Um, and that was uh, the grant to sequence a type 2 plant, in this case, Jamaican lion. So containing both THC and CBD synthases. Mm -hmm. um, and that currently, to my knowledge, is the most complete reference genome out there. Um, and, you know, we there were a, a couple different iterations, right? There was just the first uh, the first phase, which is just getting all the sequence done. And then there was like uh, 
uh, high C with phase genomics, so putting it all into chromosomes. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so that that project, I think at the end of the day, took about six months. I was less involved on the actual R&D side of it, more so just on the operations and getting it going. Um, but it was really exciting to be a part of, um, and I'm really grateful for that experience. Um, I ended up leaving Medicinal in uh, October of 2019, so fairly recently. Um, but now I'm onto the new project with Tagleaf. I accepted a role there um, uh, early January. And um, Gary and the rest of the team have been really awesome to work with. And you know, I think many of you will start to see the limbs popping up on your radar here pretty soon. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's really, really exciting. Definitely, um, for those of you that don't work in labs, it may be hard for you to appreciate how big of a deal um, having like good laboratory software is. But um, most of the laboratory software systems that are readily available for most analytical labs um, are a lot of them are pretty clunky and. Um, some of them really, really old, like running on like ancient Microsoft Access, you know, database structures and stuff. And I was able to preview um, this Tagleaf software um, fairly recently within the past few months. And I was really, really impressed. I'm really excited to see this sort of um, um, modern take on the limbs and for it to be really targeted for cannabis labs um it's it's going to be really exciting i think i'm i'm particularly excited about that and stoked to hear that that you're involved with them that's that's great yeah and you know i think what it is is a lot of these limb systems are kind of taken from other industries and just exactly. kind of superimposed onto cannabis yeah. um but as we all know cannabis has a wide variety of matrices with a lot of different particulars <laughs> yeah. associated with running a cannabis lab so and then also we're at the age of compliance now with metric and you know, all the data packages and different requirements for your certificates of analyses. And, you know, there's just a lot of nuances compared to other industries that um, most of these limbs companies really aren't taking into account. Um, so we're really geared towards making compliance easy and also making running your lab a lot more seamless. So you can focus yes. on actually doing quality science rather than oh, my inventory is running out. <laughs> oh, crap, I can't run these tests, you know, things right. like that. Um, preventative uh, triggers, things like that, uh, to make sure that you can focus on what you need to focus on, and that is running a lab, not um, not having yeah. to not having to uh, worry about all the mundane other little particulars. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that's all super exciting. It's, um, it's funny, it's bizarre how similar our backgrounds are in some ways. Like the the whole story of like, you know, nearing the ending of your schooling and then getting connected with someone in the laboratory testing space. Like that's my pretty much exact story as well. Like coming across um, Anthony Smith um, at the time when he was building Kinevir Research and him and I, you know, sort of hit it off. And that's how I got into the, I mean, I had some some prior exposure in, in labs, primarily on the technology side. Um, but then that was exactly my story as well, starting off on the very bottom working your way up you do like pretty much every job in the lab <laughs> oh yeah especially in startups that's how you learn exactly right? <laughs> yep yep and then on the other side you come out with this like really nice you know full well-rounded perspective on what it takes to to run these labs and and to do it the right way so it's really cool it's like looking in a mirror mirror a little bit yeah, um, there's a reason why I'm in the, on the technology side now. You know, I, I've been, yeah. <laughs> I've ran a lab before. I've been a lab manager at one of the most yeah. high throughput labs in the state at the time. And yeah, 
it's yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And it gets old really quick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah. excited for something new. Yeah, totally. Well, um, so there's so many different directions we can go in in our conversation. And I guess the place that I'll, I'll start the conversation is about testing. Um, so obviously a lot of the work that you've done um, because of the work you've done with medicinal genomics as well has been um, largely focused on microbiology. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, qPCR specifically. Yeah. So let's start off talking a little bit about the um, the different ways of testing for microbiological contaminants. Because generally, you know, you think of there's culture plating, um, you've got antibody assays like ELISA, and then you've got DNA testing uh, through PCR. Some of the, you know the some of the big high level categories. Can you describe a little bit about what those methods are and how they differ from each other and um, when you would want to use certain technologies over others, that sort of thing? Certainly, yeah. So I guess I'll start with uh, the ancient technology, which is plating. Uh, that's been around for some time. And basically, this is where you take your sample, you add some sort of um, growth medium, right? DPW, uh, yep. tryptic soy broth, TSP, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, classic, you know, classic growth mediums. Basically, you put that in with your sample, typically a one gram sample. It really just depends on what state you're in. Other industries use a lot larger sample sizes, something mm -hmm. like, you know, anywhere from five to 25 grams or even upwards of 50 grams. Really just depends on what you're testing, right? But since cannabis mm -hmm. is a very precious commodity, <laughs> um, people <laughs> don't want to give up their, you know, ultra high quality stuff um, more than a gram. So that's typically what we see out there in the marketplace. Um, but basically, you're you're homogenizing your sample, usually with a stomacher or with, you know, by hand massaging. Um, and then you're taking that and you're taking a small subsample of that and then plating it. So basically placing that and inoculating the plate and then um, you know, streaking it or um, you know, basically putting, spreading it uniformly across the plate's surface. Uh, and then you're incubating that depending on what you're testing for. You may incubate it for, you know, uh, from 25 to 27C is what's typically done for aspergillus, up five to seven days, mm -hmm. up to seven days type of thing. Um, but it's going to differ for every different microorganism that you're testing for. Um, and then you're basically taking whatever you diluted it at, so you're counting the colonies on the plate and then multiplying it by that dilution factor, and now you have a colony-forming unit per gram readout. Um, and that is typically your standard readout that you see in just about everywhere. I mean, while qPCR is... Uh, very commonly accepted now in the cannabis industry, when it comes to things like total count tests, you do have to convert that CQ value or cycle of quantitation, um, which I'll get into a bit more later, but you have to convert that value into something that is acceptable for regulators, which is that CFU per gram. Right. Um, now, plating is good because it is only enumerating what is actually viable within the sample, right? Um, and so a lot of people aren't concerned about what's dead in a sample or what was left over. Um, and so that is an advantage of plating. Uh, a disadvantage of plating is that some of these things don't ver grow very well in culture. Um, it depends, again, what type of mediums you're using, what types of broths you're using. Um, there's a number of factors that can contribute to how well something cultures on a plate. Um, so I would say those are kind of like the high, uh, you know, the high points of plating. Um, and the potential drawbacks of it. Um, but then there's molecular methods like qPCR. Um, 
qPCR, right? So this is quantitative polymerase chain reaction. So for those of your listeners that are familiar with polymerase chain reaction, now this is just monitoring that reaction in real time using different fluorophores. Um, and so you're basically, typically a qPCR run is 40 cycles. Um, you are looking at, you know, how quickly does it amplify? So, and then at the point at which it crosses a threshold, so you set that threshold to remove any background, the point at which your qPCR um, signal crosses that threshold is what we call a cycle of quantitation. So that is the point at which it is crossing that threshold line and the actual cycle number. So basically the earlier of a CQ you have, that means that the earlier, uh, or sorry, the, the greater presence of your target there is mm -hmm. because it's uh, amplifying quicker, whereas if it's amplifying later, uh, then that means you had less of your target. So that would be a higher CQ value, right? Um, and so I guess the disadvantage with qPCR is that you aren't just selectively amplifying what is uh, alive. You are getting everything because yeah. DNA is DNA. So mm -hmm. you're going to amplify mm -hmm. everything. And some people push back and say, well, hey, isn't that to our detriment? Um, you know, uh, if you know you have a bunch of dead stuff on there, well, why am I failing for dead stuff? That just doesn't make sense. Well, a couple things there, right? So uh, in the context of things like aspergillus or other mycotoxin-producing fungi, yep, exactly, well, yeah. um, you know, if there's a bunch of that left over, well, that could be indicative that you have yeah. mycotoxins in your sample. Now, of course, many states have opted for mycotoxin testing, things like aflatoxins and ochratoxin. Um, and so that, that checks that box, right? Um, but still, it's good to know. And a lot of people have this misconception that because you're only, oh, sorry, that you're, because you're amplifying all of these things, right? Um, that you're going to fail more as a result. But actually, we find that it's, at least in my experience, it was the opposite. Um, and I think the reasoning for that is, um, and I guess this is another drawback of plating that I forgot to mention, and this is a perfect tie-in, well, there's a lack of selectivity. So typically when yes, you're plating yeah. something, um, you're using right selective growth media um, that are supposed to foster the growth of a particular class of microbial contaminant. Now, uh, there's growth mediums, there's also antibiotics that are used for selection mm -hmm. in this case. And as we all know, antibiotics are, you know, uh, microorganisms are becoming more and more resistant to these things. Um, and just because you select for it based on an antibiotic or some sort of growth medium doesn't necessarily mean that off-target organism growth isn't going to happen. So um, what uh, the, the publications that medicinal genomics have, have done have showed is that there is a significant amount of off-target growth happening, especially in the context of total use of mold plates. Um, and depending on what state you're in, um, you know, typically the limits are around 10,000 CFUs per gram. Um, but if you're getting you know, off-target growth, you're counting dots that are actually not yeasts or molds, you're counting mm -hmm. oftentimes bacteria. Um, and so this, of course, leads to inflated counts, more failures. Um, and so people have this aversion to moving toward qPCR because they think that's going to happen, you know, more frequently. Yeah. But really, it's the opposite because you're using targeted primers. You are selectively amplifying only for the class of organisms that you're looking for. Um, you don't have this potential for off-target growth in that case. Um, so that is a, a benefit of qPCR there. And again, you have this live versus dead thing. But some vendors have wisened up, and some of them have free DNA removal kits, or some of them have uh, mechanisms where that you add a reagent, um, and basically it's a uh, basically a DNA that can only enter in the dead cells, cleaves up the DNA of the dead cells, and now you're selectively amplifying the live cells. 
And so mm -hmm. I think as that technology starts to come into cannabis and cannabis microbial testing and uh, we catch up, there is going to be more concordance or a better uh, chance of concordance between plating and molecular methods. Uh, but again, it's really like comparing apples and oranges. Uh, a lot of regulators want to see like equivalent or better, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you can show better, um, again, but not everyone's going to want to sequence the amplicons that come out of their qPCR run and then sequence what's on the plate as well and say, hey, regulators, yeah. this is better. Um, that takes a lot of time and money. Um, so I think that's the real disconnect. And I think regulators just need education as to why it's a more selective method and why it's a yeah. better method. Um, and I think that's just going to take time. You know, um, as the science gets better, regulators have to catch up. Is really what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah. of course, what's currently in place for like USP, EP, um, AHP, all these different um, you know types of uh, standards that are out there. They you know they are in the CFU program mode. They're not in QPCR mm -hmm. mode. Um, and so this is also another consideration. There's limitations to that colony forming unit. Um, things like Aspergillus don't typically don't like to grow in perfect little dots. They form what we call heterogeneous macro colonies. So yeah, yeah. what appears to be, you know, maybe a hundred CFU could actually, in reality, be thousands of CFUs, mm -hmm. just because the morphology is this thing is not really very easy to distinguish. As you know, that's you know, that's a, a ten colonies actually within that one colony. It's it's hard to discern, right? Um, so that's where I think molecular technologies really do have a big leg up. Yeah, yeah, no, that. That's a that's a really good um, explanation, and it yeah it is interesting. You know, you're highlighting one of these interesting dynamics that we have to deal with in the cannabis testing space. That um, the regulations that are formed are not always um, formed through um, um, an educated you know background about you know, what they're trying to regulate because they're having to form these reg these rules really quickly. You know, once something gets passed, they form these committees, subcommittees, they have to, you know, get some things defined and move on. And then with the idea that they'll get refined down the road as the industry plays out and, you know, and they get feedback. And so what you get is, yeah, you know, these issues where you have to report in colony forming un units per gram, or you've got to, you know, in other contexts, like in chemical testing, pesticide testing or whatever, you have certain, um, um, LOQs you have to meet or whatever that are going to drive the technologies that you choose in your lab to to do the testing. And then once once you are doing testing in a regulated environment, I mean, it's nonstop samples coming in constantly. There is no time for investigative, fun R&D work, which was something that really bummed me out when I was in the lab because I really wanted to be able to do some interesting R&D and it just proved to be really impossible. It was just too busy, too much going on. Um, I know that all too well. You and I, wow, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between yeah. the two of us. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, it's just one of those things. It'd, it'd be nice to get all of us uh, cannabis testing lab folks together in one uh, group and share stories because I'm sure we've experienced similar things. But it's one reason why I'm getting excited about the... Um, the hemp testing stuff, I saw that they're delaying the um, DEA requirement, which is interesting, which I've seen some misreporting on that. A lot of people are claiming that the USDA has totally done away with um, labs needing to be uh, registered with the DEA to do hemp testing. Um, but to my knowledge, they just delayed it. They didn't totally nix it. Um, but 
I'm excited to see like university labs and stuff start to do cannabis testing and be able to maybe take on some of that investigative work that we've been all wanting to participate in, but um, haven't had the resources or time, time's one the biggest resource um, to do all of that. So I'm, I'm optimistic to see what's, you know, what we learn in the future and what sort of standardization among methods comes and how that um, all interplays with regulatory changes and education, you know, everything that you just talked about. Exactly. And yeah, I think there's a lot of groups making some good headway on this. Um, AOAC's Cannabis Analytical Science Program, mm -hmm. CASP, is doing a lot of great work. They have three different working groups uh, covering pesticides, uh, potency uh, as in various infused products and flowers and concentrates. And they've also got the Microbial Contaminants Working Group, which is actually chaired by um, CAN's chair, Julia Vermontes, a good friend mm -hmm. of mine. Um, I think, and I'm not sure if Pat is still involved as a, he was a co-chair of that as well. I think that Julia has now fully accepted the responsibilities there. Um, and then we've also got, um, ASTM's D37 committee on cannabis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that has a very wide scope. I think there's like 13 different, um, different groups within mm -hmm. the D37 committee. Um, <laughs> wow. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, I, you know, there's so many of these organizations and again, they typically work off of volunteers. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I try and stay abreast of what's going on, but with so much going on uh, in my own work life and uh, everything that's going on in all the different standards organizations, it is sometimes hard to keep up, but I am members of both of those and try and stay as active as possible and give my feedback when it's, uh, when it's helpful and uh, I have time to do so. Yeah. And what about the um, the work that you're doing with the American Chemical Society? What's some of the? I know we're branching off into different stuff now, but it ties into what we're what we're getting into. I know that you're involved with the cannabis chemistry subdivision of the American Chemical Society. So can you explain a little bit about um, what's yep. going on there? And there That's we go. Us. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What um, uh, what is the focus with that group, and kind of what are you? Uh, hoping to achieve through your work there. Sure. Yeah. And I guess I should start with um, how did I even get involved? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good um, one. I, I forgot to even mention that during my kind of intro as to how I got into cannabis science. So I had been working at SC Labs for about three years at this point and, you know, working at, uh, at a, well, at this time, just quality control testing in general, you know, yep. um, high throughput lab. It, you're really turning a crank. <laughs> um, yep, exactly. And so this it's is how machine. I got it. Yeah, it's a machine, right? If those instruments aren't stacked, they're losing money. So really, I kind of got bored of that after a while, right? And, and I, that's when I got into <laughs> scientific writing and other things. But I was like, you know, how can I be involved in the cannabis industry in some other capacity? Um, and how can I meet new people? Well, so Andrew Pham, who was the lead scientist at SE Labs, um, had recommended that I come down to an ACS meeting and meet some of the folks that he had been involved with. Um, at, which was the very early stages of CAN, uh, the Cannabis Chemistry Subdivision. So um, I ended up meeting Ezra Pryor, who's one of the founders of CAN, and mm -hmm. I just was like, hey, you know, I, I could help you out with this. I mean, I'm great at social media. I mean, I think a lot of you see me on, out there on social media, mm -hmm. and as a, a former event promoter, uh, I'm pretty well-versed in that. So I ended up becoming their social media coordinator, um, and then just kind of moved up the ranks from there. I uh, got involved with the scholarship with the El Soli Award, um, which mm -hmm. is basically a scholarship that we give out to cannabis chemists. We, you know, really all cannabis scientists, we don't just exclusively do chemistry. We've given it for work on the microbiome and other things as well. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to be just chemistry, right? Um, and uh, we give away $7,500 a year uh, for that. And that basically allows the, uh, the researcher to present their work at the ACS national meeting in the spring. 
Uh, so that's the, we basically do one cycle a year for that. Um, and then I eventually moved up the ranks as vice chair and hoping that in uh, 2021, I can be uh, chair of the organization. We are actually applying for full division status in the fall uh, with oh, any cool. luck. Um, nice. So that's that's been really exciting to watch happen. We have about 700 members now, but I guess what we're doing here, back to your original question, yeah. what is the purpose of this? Well, so the American Chemical Society is one of the largest and oldest scientific organizations in the country, and really it's uh, a worldwide thing. Um, and of course, cannabis has become a very hot topic um, in a lot of spaces, um, but in general, in the U.S., as we get toward, further and further towards federal legalization, there needs to be this legitimization that needs to happen because for a long time, this has been wook science. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, it's been kind of just like mountain men, you know, that are just like, ah, oh, you know, I, I grow the bomb and, you know, I get it tested at some lab with who knows what methods and are they, have they been validated properly? You know, there's a lot of questions that come up for someone who's been in a regulated industry that understands <laughs> science well, and they're like, well, you know, they're asking questions, right? right. Um, and a lot of those questions early on didn't have very good answers. I'll tell you that mm -hmm. right now. So yeah. really what Can is hoping to do is one, drive professionalism within, within this industry, right? Because it was black market for a very long time. And so that professional element, I think in a lot of ways, has gotten a lot better. I'll tell yes. you that right now. Yes. Um, but you know, we are still a very young industry, and there is a need for professionalism in the industry. So that's part one. Um, part two, I really see it as building community, a scientific community that is focused on pushing the industry in the right direction and being good stewards of the industry. So that's either through you know promoting research um, or getting people in the right places that they need to go, getting them jobs. Because um, it is sometimes hard for a lot of these traditional mm -hmm. scientists to break into the industry because you have to know someone, right? Yeah. Um, and for a long time, it's been kind of taboo to get involved with the industry if you're from a traditional science background. Uh, you know, some people in the traditional sciences would probably think of it as career suicide, but a lot of people yes, are looking yeah. at it now in a different light, which is great because um, it is obviously now a very legitimate industry. Um, but it still has a lot of uh, iterations to go through before it becomes a fully mature industry. So we're really hoping to be a driving force uh, in helping develop that maturity. And then, as I said, with community, right, um, I've built what we call the CanFam. <laughs> I've helped build it. I don't want to uh, definitely yeah. I'm not the only one who's been involved here. But, you know, our executive committee really has a bunch or we're a bunch of leaders. I mean, it's just like. But you get on the phone with these guys and they're everyone's just got, you know, all these different ideas as to how we can do better um, and how we can improve uh, what we're offering and really how we connect people in the sciences. So really, it's just building that research community, building that development uh, of the industry and just really kind of mentoring people and bringing them up. Um, you know, I I had a lot of great mentorship at Can through Ezra, through Jehan, through a number of people. I, there's too many lists. Julia has been awesome leader and has really taught me a lot about what it means to be a leader. And um, so, yeah, it, leadership is another thing, um, kind of yeah. teaching people how to be responsible and, um, you know, really kind of bring people up and foster, um, you know, cultivate good, good research and just build people's networks, right? We yeah. have these networking events typically uh, that surround uh, big cannabis conferences or 
um, any HCS national meeting, we're usually having a networking event to connect scientists. So I think building that community is a really big part of why I'm involved and why I've stayed involved. You know, we're all volunteers. Um, you know, yeah. we don't we don't do this to make bank. We do this because we love what we do and we care about uh, the people in the industry and we care about those who want to you know have ha want this pre professional development and really want to succeed and get go further in their career. So that's really a lot of what CAN does is. Um, this professional development, building community, and connecting people of all different backgrounds so that we can move this thing forward the right way. Yeah, and I've um, I've noticed some of your social media posts lately have been about um, your pursuit of learning more about leadership broadly, which is something that I'm fascinated about too, being an entrepreneur and also having been a manager in different contexts and stuff. That's something I'm always um, fascinated to learn about. So something I'd be interested to ask you which isn't really related to cannabis, but I think it's, it'd be uh, good to talk about around leadership. What's um, some of the like big, I guess, takeaways that you've gotten from some of your own professional development that you've gone through or that you've studied um, that were kind of like, I don't know, maybe light bulb moments where you're like, oh, I didn't, you know, think about leadership in that way or, you know, that really um, empowered you more? No, I think it's a good question. Um, really being a good leader is being, being open to, well, having trust and building trust mm. and rapport among those that you're a leader for. Um, you know, it's not about you. It's not about you as a leader. It's about you caring about those who, you know, you're cultivating and bringing up and those who you work with. Um, so trust is a big part of that. And also mentorship and just showing that you care about the people that you work with. Um, so yeah. I think that's a big one. And then really being, and again, I am not a perfect leader. I'm still learning so much. Yeah, right, but, sure. Yeah. But really, I think, and I'm preparing uh, hopefully one day to be at the helm of CAN, but you know, um, who knows what the future holds. But what I can say is that I think being a good leader means that you're not authoritative. You just happen to know how to influence people and guide mm -hmm. people in the right way. Um, and I think showing them that you care about them and that you, you know, you want to make things work and that you're, again, consistently hardworking. Um, you know, no one likes to see their leader, um, you know, stoned on the couch, not doing anything or not returning emails or phone calls. Um, so, you know, being uh, being a role model, being an yeah. example uh, that, that people want to follow, I think, is a big part of being a good leader and uh, representing the organization well. Right. Um, nobody wants to be, um, you know, a working under somebody that you know, sets a horrible example or makes uh, the rest of the group look bad. So mm -hmm. I think just being a respectable person and also just um, being open and, uh, you know, and never, you know, like don't hold grudges or anything like that, you know, like talk it out. Um, those are good qualities in a leader. Someone that uh, has always has that open line of communication, says what they mean and means what they say, what they say, yeah. you know, um, that's a really big part, I think, about being a good leader. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, something that I've been seeing lately from some of these like um, business consulting groups and everything, particularly about the cannabis industry, is that um, something a lot that's of bad actors. <laughs> there are, yeah, that it's really common for people working in the cannabis industry to report, exp you know, a wide diversity of experiences with bad leadership. And I definitely don't think it's isolated to cannabis, but it seems to be a um, particularly a bad problem right now as the industry's maturing and these companies are maturing and trying to grow out of these startup phases and everything. It's, um, 
We were all in the really... black market before, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, can you expect us to become adults overnight? Um, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, we're all working towards it. We're all trying to do yeah. better. Um, and all you can do is your best at the end of the day. Yeah. As long as you show people that you're trying and doing your best, I think that, you know, that speaks volumes in itself. Um, you don't have to be perfect, but yep. you do the best you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Put in the honest effort. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, coming back around to some of the work you're doing, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was going back to testing um, and getting a little bit away from microbiological testing, but heavy metals. So you just uh, you gave a presentation recently um, about heavy metals in vaporizers and vape pens and um, you know that sort of stuff and. I know that from talking with, with other people, like I was talking to my old mentor, Anthony Smith, uh, well, I guess not recently, last year sometime, for his interview for the podcast, and he was talking about um, an interesting difference between the regulations in, say, Oregon, where I am, and in California, is that in Oregon, you know, you test extracts in bulk before they ever go into any packaging or anything. That's Whereas in California, yeah, you've got to crack these babies open uh, after yeah. they've gone into vape pens and see... Uh, whether they'll pass contaminant testing. So can you um, speak a, a little bit to, I don't want you to necessarily rehash your whole um, presentation on this unless you want to, but um, what's the issue there and, and what's kind of um, coming to the, to the forefront on this issue and how serious of an issue is it? Yeah. So um, firstly, I'm going to say that I'm not a toxicologist um, sure. and I am not in a position to tell people what is safe and what is not um, in the context of heavy metals. I, I kind of let the work speak for itself. I yeah. present some different guidelines or standards that are out there for other other things. Like uh, in my presentation, I talked about uh, the 2008 Na uh, National Ambient Air Quality Standard for lead. And I mm -hmm. compare that standard to that of what we saw in our work. And uh, well, specifically the action level that is required yes. in California. Yeah. Um, and at, if you're, you know, of course you breathe 24 hours a day, um, and that dosage um, or that threshold is 0.15 micrograms per meter cubed. So that results in a mean exposure of 4.8 micrograms um, in total. So if you're vaping one gram of cannabis, uh, one gram cartridge of cannabis at um, half a part per million, which is the threshold for California, you would need to vape almost five of those vape pens mm. um, in order to achieve you know, the same level as breathing in that at, at, in, at, in an environment that has that national standard um, level, right? Yeah. So that's just something I like to give for context um, because, you know, without that, I think a lot of people are just like raising the alarm, like, oh my God, this is so bad. It's like, well, mm -hmm. give it some context. How bad is it? And, you know, what, what are your real concerns um, about it? I mean, lead's cumulative, obviously. So no amount yeah. of lead is going to be good lead. Um, but at the same time, you know, people don't, have the ability to control the air they breathe or the water mm -hmm. they drink. Food is a little bit different, right? Because you could choose to eat certain things and not eat right. certain things. Um, but the way you consume cannabis, that you absolutely have um, a choice there. Um, so this work may steer people towards consuming less um, in the context of cannabis vapor cartridges. Um, may not. I mean, but I'm, I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm just there to present the data. Um, but what we did find, right, so again, this is a pilot study, limited sample sizes. Um, sure, we yeah. just grabbed a handful of vape pens that were suspected to be contaminated, 
uh, from a variety of different folks in the industry. I've worked with a couple different groups on this. Uh, some folks from CAN were very helpful in getting me materials. Um, also, I'm very active on Facebook. Uh, California City and Regulation Watch was really helpful in, uh, in this endeavor. Uh, and then also just uh, one of my collaborators, actually we know each other through the Cannabis Science and Chemistry Facebook for which I'm a moderator. Um, so, you know, just kicking around a lot of these different ideas, um, getting COAs from different people and just kind of trying to guide the project in that way. Um, all that was very helpful. But basically we took these vape cartridges that we sourced, we filled them with what we call realistic extract solutions, so THC or CBD distillate, various cutting agents and terpenes, and then we watched these things. We did different time point tests, so one month and two months, and we were definitely able to see that relative to our starting materials, uh, which we, of course, tested you mm -hmm. know, to make sure that they were, at least we had a baseline of right. what heavy metal contamination was there, but slowly and slowly, you know, it's starting to uptick and uptick. Um, and then we ran these things through a smoking machine, so this is a real... This is a really rudimentary setup. I mean, sure, yeah. uh, we had we had zero funding to do this work. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I got distillate um, from you know just some friends, um, both THC and CBD. I already had every terpene under the sun in my fridge just because I have mm -hmm. fun uh, yep. mixing different terpenes <laughs> and making formulations. Cutting agents are easy to find. I mean, MCT you find at any mm -hmm. any old grocery store typically or health food store. Um, and then I I got some different cutting agents that are also used in the market. No vitamin E acetate, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, oh, and this man. Is, well, yeah, right. Oh man, no vitamin E. Um, but anyway, so you know, it's actually funny because this work. Well, that's not funny, <laughs> but um, this work was actually we started to think about this um, actually as the regulations were rolling out on January first of two thousand nineteen, and then of course E Valley happened and vitamin E and all that started mm -hmm. happening over the summer. So it was really kind of perfect timing to, to start doing this work. And I think that's why the work has actually got so much attention is um, basically because, you know, that, that whole thing blew up. It's a vape yeah, crisis, Yeah, people are trying right? to figure out what's going on, yeah. It's a vape crisis, but how many people die from cigarettes, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> um, I know. Yeah. It, it's just, uh, oh God, it, I, I, it bothers me. It bothers me that we focus in yeah. on this one cutting agent and you know make a huge stink about it yet there's so many other things killing people that are way worse um that are you know regulated industries yep. that are just that people put in their bodies every day yet the cannabis people are the ones getting vilified it's well just... it's a it's a good example of how the media can and, and this is happening with like the coronavirus right now but how the oh, media yeah. can latch on to numbers and statistics and present things in a way that really make things seem you know, very extreme. But then if you take a step back and you're like, wait, how many people are using these things? The, the quote unquote vape crisis was, was a similar situation. And I mean, obviously it's, it's always a terrible thing when people are, you know, getting sick and, you know, and some people really having these, uh, these fatal reactions and everything that's terrible and we need to understand it. But, um, it was disappointing to see how much in a frenzy that really, got everybody and what really made me nervous was then the push to make regulatory changes um based on very limited data and you know a very poor understanding of what's even going on in the first place yeah yeah and i mean so i guess the other thing i should mention about this work that this is what actually you know i thought was pretty cool about it was that smoking machine apparatus that i kind of was yeah. alluding to earlier um so again no funding we we did buy a very cheap aquarium pump from Amazon, flip the solenoid on it, 
we rigged this thing up with a bunch of HPLC tubing. We had a Y connector <laughs> yeah. uh, and an Eppendorf tube to collect the condensate. And we'd run these cartridges through the smoking machine uh, programmed with an Arduino. I know nothing about coding or computer <laughs> science or anything like that. So thankfully, I had Robbie, whose cousin is a whiz in that stuff. So um, so basically, we had him program this thing for us, uh, and we were running these experiments. But what was concerning was, you know, these heavy metal contaminants, they're definitely ending up in the condensate. Um, now, it's a lower, it's a lesser extent than, you know, what is remaining in the cart afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, it's still getting in your lungs, nevertheless, some of them at the California action level. So, you know, it's something to think about. Um, you know, mm-hmm. how much lead do you want to be exposed to? That's what we focused on in this work, just because that's what we saw. But who knows? We're testing for the big four. Um, right. Arsenic, uh, cadmium, and mercury could also be in there. It just really depends on what carts you're sourcing. And then there's other things from the, like the e-cigarette industry that you might want to look at, too, mm-hmm. like chromium and nickel. Uh, those are regulated yeah. by the FDA, and they're testing for those. Um, or should we be worried about that in cannabis vaporizer cartridges? I mean, it's the same idea um, for the most right. part. It's not completely the same, but it's very similar. So, you know, just some other things that people should be thinking about. Uh, again, yeah, I didn't. I tried to take a very neutral stance with mm-hmm. this stuff because I know it's uh, as soon as the media gets hold of it, they're going to freak out and try and wave yeah. it everywhere and say, hey, how bad is this? You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's awful. And it's like, well, I think you're taking my stuff out of context, right? But mm-hmm. um, so anyway... Um, so that was that work, and you know it's really fun to work with Robbie and Any over at Canasafe on this. Uh, kudos to him for letting us just invade his lab over the weekends. We just <laughs> came to him with this idea. He's like, "Yeah, we're on this vape stuff. You know, let's work on it." Um, so, uh, yeah. So I mean, that that was a fun project. I hope to do more of it. Um, when am I when am I going to find hours in the day to continue? <laughs> I don't know. But um, <laughs> I know. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's things in the works. I just got to put all the pieces together to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. And. Uh, what sort of levels were you seeing in these extracts over time? Like, what were some of the highest levels that you saw? So, there was one sample, which we can't really explain what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, this one clocked in at about 600 or 6,500 ppb. So, that's like mm-hmm. 13 times, over 13 times the action level. Yeah. Um, but that was what was remaining in the cart. The amount of condensate, we, we couldn't recover enough condensate. Um mm-hmm. And we're not sure what exactly happened. I don't have a good explanation for that because every other run we did, we were able to collect condensate, no problem. But that would have been a really interesting one to see. Yeah. Uh, and then we also, before like we actually started running at the samples that we had created, uh, we sourced some contaminated cartridges from a California vendor, uh, manufacturer in this case, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had already failed compliance testing. It had been in quarantine. Uh, and they were sent to me. So since the time they had been tested, I think they'd been sitting for about six months. And in that particular case, uh, we did find, uh, after spinning out one of these cards, there were a bunch of them, uh, it came out at about 1.5 ppm, so three times over the action level. And the condensate that was produced from that vapor um, ended up just barely below the action level. So um, again, you know, storage time definitely plays a factor um, mm-hmm. in how much you're getting uh, if the hardware is contaminated to begin with. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things that we still need to figure out. And also what's concerning to me is a lot of uh, vape cart manufacturers have actually wisened up to this issue. And what, so what they'll do is they'll fill their carts like, and as soon as they can, they're sending it off for testing. Mm. Um, so really the big concern for me here, as, or well, for uh, any consumer, I think, is yeah. what you see on that COA is not necessarily indicative of what mm-hmm. is sitting there on the shelf because it has now had time to leach out. And so by the time it's getting into your hands, maybe 
one to two months later. It depends on how long it's sitting. Mm -hmm. But it could be significantly higher levels of the heavy metals in there. Um, so, you know, that, you know, for consumers should be a little alarming. Yeah. And this touches on uh, what I was going to ask you next, which is what can both producers and consumers do to try to mitigate, you know, if they if they determine they are concerned about this and want to minimize, you know, exposure to metals and extracts, what can they do? And I guess one thing is on the consumer side is try to understand when the cartridges were produced and try to get, you know, things that are as early in the timeline as possible. Um, but what about on the producer side? If, you know, let's say a vaporizer uh, cartridge manufacturer is listening to this right now, and maybe they're in a state where uh, they don't have the same testing rules. So maybe this is the first they're even hearing of this being an issue. Um, what kinds of, and, and maybe you don't even know, I don't know, but what can these producers do? What conversations should they be having with their suppliers to try to minimize the chances of you know exposing their consumers to unnecessary levels of metals well show me coas for your hardware mm -hmm. um and then furthermore some of these uh vendors for vape hardware have actually wisened up to the issue and they're now certifying their their carts as heavy metal free um some other alternatives might be looking into ceramic although i have heard mm -hmm. that ceramic has the issue of arsenic in it um, mm -hmm. Again, I, I don't have any data to back that up, but this is yeah. something that I've heard from some of the colleagues that I work with. Um, and then stainless steel might also be an option. Again, I, I you know, my knowledge of other strategies, uh, I just did the work, but some, you know, right. there may be other ways to go about this. Um, but yeah, really, it's just ensuring that you're working with the right vendors. Is it coming from overseas? Um, you know, what type of QC have they done to make sure that, yep. you know, and making sure that your carts are consistent, right? Because there's also the possibility of intralot variability. You right. can have one yep. that is totally contaminated and overloaded with lead, and then another <laughs> yeah. one that's perfectly clean that they tested, and then they go, oh, yeah, here's my COA, you know, that those types of things. Yep. So you want to do your due diligence on your, your cart. Uh, vendors spe specifically in this capacity because it's just like without that um, you know you're just kind of trusting these people and yeah. um, you know it in the cannabis industry it's you know it's crazy out there <laughs> let's be yeah. real it's, yeah. a, it's a mess sometimes in a lot of these states so um, well, especially trying to figure it out yeah and especially you know these ancillary companies that are able to benefit off of the momentum of the cannabis industry you know these producers have all sorts of vendors trying to get their attention um, you know, through any number of ways. And it can be very confusing and, you know, at times frustrating wading through the sea of noise, you know, especially, you know, you've been to the conferences, you know, some uh, of these bigger industry conferences, it's, it's insane how, you know, just how much is going on. Yeah. And I can't tell you the amount of times uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I can't tell you the amount of times I've had somebody reach out to me on LinkedIn from China saying, please yes. buy my vape carts. I have best yes. vape cart hardware for you. And I'm like, uh, you know, firstly, I'm not an extraction. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm in testing. Um, <laughs> and I don't make vape carts, uh, you know, buy my distillation equipment, all this stuff. And I'm like, where? I, I get it. I have a lot of connections in the space. That does not mean this is what I do. So I get unsolicited, <laughs> you know, yeah, buy my stuff too. all yeah. the time. I'm sure, yeah, you share the same. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 gotten old. And I've tried to figure out ways to... Um, try to prevent it but it's hard because without just like cutting people off completely um but i noticed once i started the podcast they started rolling in these unsolicited messages and 
uh, connection requests and everything that say, hey, I can get you money if you need money. Oh, you need uh, vape carts? Yeah, extraction equipment, whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's nauseating sometimes. <laughs> just yeah, like, I just try and tune it out. You know, I'm yep. not going to be rude to these people. It's just exactly, like, yeah. You, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> exactly, yep, yep, yeah, totally. Yeah, well, and I, I think um, one of the things you're touching on too, so some of the consulting that I do with producers is around like GMP compliance and supplier valuation is a huge part of GMP that you should have a supplier valuation process. Exactly, yes, yeah. Vendor qualification, and yeah. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, you know, what questions are you prepared to ask these vendors and how are you qualifying someone as a quote-unquote approved supplier for... Um, your materials, anyone listening to this that is a producer, you know, that's really how um, you should be thinking about these things. You've got to implement these systems and have structured ways for evaluating um, all these vendors. And so in being able to make these, um, you know, risk-based decisions, you know, like in this context of these cartridges, you know, how much risk are you willing to take and how do you mitigate that risk? Well, you mitigate the risk by, you know, trying to get certificates of analysis on on the carts themselves and try to Better ensure yet, that... Better yet, go visit the vendor and exactly, make sure they're auditing. doing good practices. Yep. Yeah, exactly, auditing, exactly. Yep. And I think that's something that uh, people really take for granted, that as a customer in the manufacturing space, you you can make quality agreements with your suppliers where you could go inspect them, audit them, you know, to an extent to what's related to your business together um, and get, you know, that direct experience in their facility. And I think that's something that particularly in the cannabis industry that people are not taking advantage of enough. Um, and once again, like you said, you know, this is an ISO thing. It's a GMP thing. Um, but there are ways that producers can empower themselves more and be able to um, leverage these um um, you know, quality standards and and even, like I said, just basic GMP rules uh, to their advantage. I think the problem is we're all just trying to keep our heads above water and, uh, you know, try not to get yeah. taxed to death. But uh, I think as <laughs> yeah. that, you know, as that starts to get alleviated, hopefully, um, or just in general, as people start to see the writing on the wall that, yeah, federal legalization is coming. Um, yeah. And when that does happen, I think that GMP is going to be the standard across the board. There's going to be no more of this like, oh, yeah, I make it in my kitchen, whatever. I think it's already starting yeah. to be phased out uh, right. a lot all over the place, uh, especially in you know states that have already legalized and are starting to have these programs in place. But uh, especially if the FDA gets involved, right? Yeah. Um, you exactly. Know, yeah. All of these things are going to have to be looked at very closely, and there's going to have to be procedures in place to ensure that consumers are safe and that they know what they're consuming, right? Um, so yeah. I think... All these things are about to change drastically. I think the feds really just have no idea what to do. They're just like, yeah, this is yeah. such a big thing and there's so much momentum behind it. And, you know, they really should have gotten uh, a handle on this early on. But instead, yep. it's delay, delay, delay. You know, we don't want this to happen. Procrastinate, procrastinate. Pro procrastinate. Yeah. We want to keep the money in alcohol and pharma and big tobacco's <laughs> pockets. Let's just keep delaying and, you know, something will figure itself out, right? Right, um, yeah. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's what they hope, um, you know, but it, it's not going to get any better if you don't address the issue. It just gets worse. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's my hope that people start to, you know, think about what's coming because um, yeah, clearly the federal exactly. government hasn't really prepared very well for it. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting ride for sure. Hold on tight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Um, 
let's switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about something that um, I think is somewhat um, kind of fresh in your world. I've been following some of the uh, work that you've been doing with uh, several people, and you'll have to fill in the gaps, but I know that uh, you've been working with a group of people around trying to understand cannabinoid hypermesis syndrome and yeah. trying to um, basically collect data and try to understand what patterns, what insights you can tease out of that. Um, and cannabinoid hypermesis syndrome is one of these things that is um, very controversial uh, among people in the industry. Uh, some oh, people yeah. that are like very, it's something that I really took for granted because I'm, I always tell people I'm kind of like a the hermit scientist, like doing this podcast. I'm like crawling out of my cave and getting on social media and like seeing, you know, these discussions that are that are happening in the in the industry. I never realized how passionate some people are to kind of battle this idea that cannabinoid it's, hypermesis syndrome is even a thing. It's ridiculous, honestly. Um, you know, there's so much evidence out there at this yeah. point to suggest that yes, cannabinoids cause this issue. Yet, you know, you can send them as much literature as you want. It's going to fall on deaf ears because they think cannabis yeah. can do no harm. Well, newsflash, people: not everything about <laughs> cannabis is positive. Um, yeah. For those of you who think that, uh, you really should kind of switch your perspective a little bit and take a look at the other side, because um, yeah. you know, there's. Re I mean, of course. We've all been brainwashed a bit by, you know, governmental organizations that want to make yeah. cannabis look bad. So everyone has this natural aversion to, oh, you know, cannabis is bad and yada, yada. But it, there are downsides, right? And I could mm -hmm. go through a list of them. I'm not going to right now because I'm going to stay focused on the subject of CHS. <laughs> but I mean, um, you know, not everything is a positive in that context. And yeah. what I'm really bothered by uh, is this neem oil thing because mm. people just harp on yes. neem oil and it's like okay so you have all these different experts now i think ethan russo did an article not too long ago about mm -hmm. this you know just kind of breaking it down like yeah the presentation kit has some overlapping um you know things with neem toxicity but it's still not the same thing at all and there's plenty of people that have chs that have smoked pesticide free and neem free specifically cannabis yeah. and have still triggered it's still triggered episodes for them so i really think that okay and again this is specifically neem I've got beef with. I don't, <laughs> right. as adoractin. Um, yep. Other things, other pesticides, you know, we don't have a lot of toxic toxicological data to draw on, especially in the context mm -hmm. of combustion and inhalation. Exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, the closest thing that we have is, I think it's from Caresta, which is a, a tobacco, um, mm -hmm. tobacco standard um, from France. So I think that's the best thing that we have to draw on, Paul. And I think, it, so... I'm not ruling out anything in the pesticide category. I'm not saying that, you know, pesticides absolutely do not cause CHS, but I can say with a fair degree of certainty at this point that neem is not the cause. Um, and something that some of your listeners might not know that it's not just limited to THC, CBD as well can trigger episodes in some people. Um, but uh, to get back to exactly how I got involved in this whole thing, I was seeing all these battles unfold on social media and other places, just like you have been. Um, and you know, so I really wanted to learn more. I read up about it, um, you know, the trip V1 observation, basically there's, so there's uh, relief that people are seeing, but I, well, I guess I first saw it all over the media, right? This mm -hmm. mysterious illness that causes marijuana users to vomit violently. I use the term <laughs> marijuana because yeah. that's just the news for you, right? Right. Um, and so I'm like, well, is there really something to this, right? And then I started reading about the literature on it and, you know, they say that it's, you know, at least people find relief from hot showers, 
-hmm. and um, and also capsaicin cream. So that's pretty particular, right? Um, so capsaicin, of course, uh, binds to TRPV1. Uh, TRPV1 is um, basically transient uh, receptor vanilloid. So it's a vanilloid receptor, basically. Yeah, transient so receptor a, potential. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. That's that's there it is. Um, but anyway, so TRPV1 uh, basically modifies calcium influx, yep. um, and so you know that was an interesting insight there. And so I was like, all right, well. Let me see what else I can find. And really, it's just a bunch of case studies. There's mm -hmm. not really a great understanding. It first appeared and was actually like formally a thing in 2004. Mm -hmm. um, but most of this is just case studies. And it, people say that it's very rare, but I think that it's not as rare as some people think it is because yeah. I think there's a lot of underreporting that's gone on and mm -hmm. really misdiagnosis. People just yes. didn't yeah. know about it. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, this is a, getting a lot of hype in the media, and I think that people really don't know a lot about it. So why don't I pull together a bunch of people that at least have some baseline understanding of it, um, and or those who have it, um, mm -hmm. and bring them for a discussion? So I, I pitched this to um, the folks at CanMed, and you know, uh, after you know, there was some discussion and debate, like, oh, we don't want to make cannabis look bad. We're you know, a cannabis medicine conference. But mm -hmm. I think that it's important that people understand what the downsides are too to cannabis use because again, yeah, it's not all absolutely. roses. Yeah. Um, so um, they ended up saying, "Yeah, you know, go for it." So uh, with that, I started to look for the experts. Um, really, there aren't a ton of them out there. I started to reach out mm -hmm. to people, you know, emergency services and um, you know those who are in the hospitals that are responding to this kind of thing and treating people and none of them wanted to be involved, it seemed like. You know, I was like reaching out to a ton of people in the literature, couldn't get responses. Those who I did get responses from were unavailable. Um, so next I was like, well, how about people who have CHS that might know something about it? And mm -hmm. the first person that came to mind that was recommended to me by, uh, by a friend of mine was Alice Moon, because Alice is a classic presentation of CHS. She's kind of been a champion and a spokesperson mm -hmm. for those who have CHS. Um, and so I reached out to Alice and... Um, you know, she said she would happily sign on. Um, and again, I was having trouble finding, you know, experts in, the, in this field. So um, she helped me out with recruiting some people. Uh, Dr. Tom Folan uh, with Solace MD was uh, another panelist that joined us for the CanMed discussion. Um, and then we had Michael, doc uh, Dr. Michael Dorr also join in on that as well uh, from Israel. Um, and that was kind of like the first, to my knowledge, the first real panel discussion with people who know something about this and we're trying to get mm -hmm. the word out. And this is where Alice presented her survey data. So she did a survey. Uh, so she's very active on social media. She's yeah. in PR these days since she can't, you know, she used to be an edibles reviewer um, or just in general cannabis product reviewer. Um, and so since she can't consume anymore, she still wanted to stay in the industry. So she does PR and marketing. Um, but um, anyway, so we got all these people together. We got them on the stage to talk about it. And she's, like I said, active in social media. And so she was conducting the survey to try and get patient data from all these different Facebook groups that she runs uh, for those suffering with CHS. Um, and so she presented that data at CanMed and there were some interesting insights that were revealed um, about treatment options and what types of people are have CHS and where they're located geographically. So it turns mm -hmm. out it's not just limited to any one geographic region or anything like that. Mm -hmm. You would I was considering the possibility that it might be associated with, well, where is all the high THC cannabis at? Because maybe that is something that has right. spurned this uh, you know, type of thing. But no, it's all over the place. Um, 
It's not, and it's also not just one route of administration. You know, if people mm -hmm. who have solely used edibles um, and you know other routes of administration other than smoking also developed this thing. So um, you know, so there's a lot of things that came up. Um, tri different triggers. Uh, chocolate um, is one of the triggers. Um, also, black pepper. Uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, all these things that Very have something in there yeah. that modify the endocannabinoid system. So we're seeing yeah. at least some patterns there. And then also different treatment options. So obviously I mentioned the hot showers um, and capsaicin as a, as a method for alleviating symptoms. But uh, also interestingly enough, running and sleeping, people, some people just sleep it off um, and mm. they see mitigation of their symptoms just by trying to sleep it off. Um, and then the running thing is really weird. I, I really don't understand why running is, you know, mm -hmm. causing people to gain relief from this. But um, running is another thing that has come up um, that I'm really that just is fascinating. Yeah, that reminds by. me of uh, I had a roommate that is unrelated, but just interesting in the same line. I had a roommate that had cluster headaches and he used to get relief by exercising vigorously. And, and that was one of the main ways he was able to get the cycle to stop of his cluster headaches well getting the blood um, flowing you know yeah exactly um, that, yeah that could certainly play into it but i mean it, it it's we still don't know a lot there's so much yeah, to be exactly. figured out and you know there's genetic underpinnings to this stuff too certainly i know that there's a clinical trial going on um looking at you know different well not a clinical trial but more of just a clinical study um sure. looking at uh you know, CHS patients and seeing what types of variants might emerge associated with CHS. Um, so uh, I don't really know much about the details of that study, but I know that is underway. Um, and then there's a lot of overlap as well with a condition called cyclical vomiting mm -hmm. syndrome. So a lot of the time people get misdiagnosed uh, with cyclical vomiting syndrome when it's CHS or vice versa. Um, and the overlap there, right, is obviously the vomiting part. And mm -hmm. but um, there's also cannabis, previous cannabis use is obviously, or current cannabis use, um, would put you more in the CHS category rather than the CVS category. Um, and then there's also just like interesting genes that are involved in this that I'm seeing a pattern with, uh, RIAR2 is one of them. So it's a ryanidine, um, mm -hmm. receptor. Basically, this is another thing that of course, calcium coming back into play. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, it encodes for a calcium channel. Um, wow. and okay. it, in particular, it's a, a leaky calcium channel. So, um, or at least in the, the variants that we're seeing there, this causes the channel to leak. Now, what direction it's leaking in is mm -hmm. not exactly clear, um, but clearly there's something going on with calcium in this process um, that is going awry. Um, and also this is happening, it's, it's, in the it's in the gut, it's also in the hippocampus as well, um, which also explains that some of these folks end up developing seizures. Um, mm. beyond it. It's a certain phenotype that comes up. Not everybody that mm -hmm. gets CHS gets seizures too, but it is something that is, has come up in the literature that I'm seeing. Um, so that's another thing that ties in. And that's also, uh, an overlapping, uh, that overlaps, something that overlaps with CVS is the, the epileptic mm -hmm. or the epileptiform that they're, they're getting from mm. this. So there's, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. And, you know, I, that's why I think this work is going to, you know, take some time because there is a lot of literature out there, but it's taking all those pieces together and kind of trying to tie them all together mm -hmm. and form more of a cohesive hypothesis. Um, there's also um, some discussion about it being a condition involved with the HPA axis. So hypothalamic mm -hmm. uh, pituitary uh, axis. And so there's, and that's uh, John Richards that has a great uh, paper on that. 
Um, there's a lot of different things and a lot of competing ideas or theories that are out there. Um, but really, I don't think anyone has a good answer as to what actually is going on. We're all just kind of trying to tie the pieces together. And so that's why I brought all these people together. Um, we've been getting a lot of inquiries from different patients about, you know, uh, or like, or not even inquiries, just here's my story. Um, yeah. I hope this helps you. So one of those people is Kyla Norton, who's a biochemistry student, and she brought a lot of really interesting insights to the table um, that I wasn't aware of previously. Um, like certain levels of different endocannabinoids, at least in the context of CVS, are increased drastically during uh, an episode, um, and that uh -huh. was a, and so that was an interesting observation for me because um, you know this is the system that's going right. CB, what they're saying it's CB one overstimulation or um, you know, mm -hmm. trip overstimulation, but you know, how is it that your response now is an increase in endocannabinoids? That just seems very strange, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot going on, um, and then also just we've been investigating, like you know, what are the different treatment options and what's worked and what hasn't. Uh, seems like there's a dopamine component involved. Uh, haloperidol is a dopamine antagonist that is being used um, to try and alleviate. Well, it, it has worked for some. It's not interesting. Yeah, not a one size fits all. In certain right. cases, uh, capsaicin doesn't work at all for some people, um, which, again, very peculiar. Um, there's also the role of something called apropytant, which is um, an NK1 antagonist. So basically, NK1 uh, binds to something called substance P. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, um, when capsaicin binds to trip B, your, um, your substance P gets released, a, lo a lot of it. Um, so it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, mm -hmm. um, but for whatever reason, b blocking that, um, that substance P signaling, um, is actually reducing vomiting in some of these mm. patients. So a lot of weird pieces. And again, I think yeah. it's very nuanced for a lot of different people. It's not just mm -hmm. any one classification. It's like, yes, you've got yeah. this variant, this variant, and this variant, but you don't have that variant, that variant, and that variant. Right. So that makes you have this very unique presentation of this condition. Um, so it's not going to be a straightforward anything, you know, it's like, there's so many different nuanced versions of it that, yeah. you know, all we can do is just say, here are the pieces, here's what we know. Um, we're not going to go out on a limb and say that we've got it figured out. Cause honestly, I think it's going to take a lot more work, especially on the sequencing front, which I think that, um, that clinical research is going to help out with a lot. Um, but you know, there's, there's just so many pieces, uh, that, yeah. it's kind of like a, I know that was supposed to go into a high level, but that was like, that's kind of really where we're at at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And it, this reminds me of like, you know, what we've been learning about epilepsy over the past 10 years or so that, you know, what we've been referring to as one or more general subtypes of epilepsy are actually these much more diverse subtypes than we even thought they were presenting with very similar symptoms. But then when we start to really dig into the, pharmacology and pharmacokinetics of what's going on, we realize there are these nuanced differences between people that are exhibiting similar symptoms that are getting lumped into one or two or three categories. And it turns out that there are a lot of different sort of um, treatments that have to be available because there are all these nuanced differences that are that are hard to identify just by talking to somebody and, and seeing what their symptoms are without really diving deeper and doing genomics or you know um some very you know sophisticated um lab work over a long period of time it can be hard to to figure that stuff out so in one sense i'm not so surprised that you're picking up on all of these nuanced differences that there's this umbrella over these things called 
CHS and, and CVS. And then really underneath those, there's um, probably a lot of nuanced different things going on physiologically that are driving those symptom presentations um, that would require unique interventions. Um, exactly. And to kind of jump back to the epilepsy thing too, yeah. I mean, like, it's definitely not a one size fits all when it comes to epilepsy. I'm sure you've, yeah, you've yeah. heard about this. I mean, like, with some people, um, you know, firstly, isolated CBD, I don't think it's the answer for that. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, whole plant, you know, getting that entourage, right? Um, that's definitely beneficial. There's a lot of things that we don't know what it's doing. Epidiolex yeah. has, of course, been approved, um, but not Epidiolex doesn't also work for everybody. Um, it works for many, but it's not, you know, it's only for certain types of certain epileptiforms mm -hmm. that it really is efficacious. Um, and I recently just saw something on LinkedIn today. Um, Jahan tagged me in it, and it was like, um, pharmaceutical CBD shows superior uh, results. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. and I'm just thinking like, okay, like who shilled you to, you know, put this out? <laughs> um, who funded the study? And, yeah. you know, like not, not Jahan. Jahan's just inquisitive and likes to get opinions on this stuff. I, I know he's not getting paid by some pharma company right, to put right, this out. Right. He just, he's like, this is interesting. Pharma one, artisanal CBD, artisanal, right? Whatever. Right, that exactly. Means. What a, whatever. And it's like, yeah. what does that, what does that entail? You know, so it's like these press releases that come out from people. I think it was like the American Neurological Society promoting, uh, you know, the study. And it's like, you always got to look at the funding sources of these things, like who is involved and what interests are at play. Um, and then, you know, again, it was like 22 people that were using this pharmaceutical CBD. And then there were nine people that were using this artisanal <laughs> CBD. And really yeah. the study design is, they don't go into any details. I can't find anything online about it. So I'm just like, you know, it, this just seems like there's not enough details for me to make any type of sense out of it. But based on what I know and what I've, you know, the various doctors that treat epilepsy that I've talked to, yeah. um, a little bit of THC helps, not always, mm -hmm. but, you know, just straight CBD, even if it is, you know, like THC free whole plant stuff that sometimes can make it worse in certain yeah. circumstances. A little bit of THC is beneficial in certain circumstances also. So it's a really delicate balance. I don't think that yeah. there is one magic bullet that just works for everybody. Um, if that were the case, I think GW would be killing it right now. <laughs> um, but you know, um, there's, there's a lot to be figured out. And I think personalized medicine and genomics and sequencing really helps us kind of hone in on what is going to work for a certain individual. But again, even then it's not perfect. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, I think that there's a lot still to be figured out on that front too. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. There's, we still have a long way to go technologically to really get to the level of like personalized medicine that we'd like to see but absolutely like all of the clinicians that i've spoken with have you know at this point it's almost getting um disappointing because i want to get some opposing views which i did um some of the more recent clinicians i talked to they're going to help me find people that are sort of of um more supportive of isolated compounds and that sort of thing so i can get their perspectives too but um Every single clinician I've spoken to has said, yeah, no, in general, I see better results with um, broader spectrum of phytochemistry and the extracts. We're able to usually use lower dosages. Uh, we tend to deal with exactly. fewer side effects. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, something when I'm educating, I try to point out that there's so much we don't understand about the quote unquote entourage effect. Um, so much <laughs> you know like it's something we talk a lot about in the industry but i mean it is such a big black hole as far as like being able to really 
and you know, like there's a lot of marketing in the cannabis industry of like, oh, I'm producing these products that are targeted to these specific conditions, and yeah. you know, I've got these terpenes, and you know, targeted. And that's a buzzword, and yeah. it's like, yeah, targeted based on your limited understanding of what it's doing. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, we've got these mechanisms of actions on lock, you know, and we know that it's working. It's like, yeah, but you that's one isolated study, not with all these things working synergistically. It's like, yeah, you're taking one piece out and saying like, yeah, it works because of this. And it's like, well, no, there's like eight different, you know, not eight, obviously, but like a zillion different things that are going on. So for you to say that your therapies are targeted and you identified a specific entourage of interest, that's, uh, I just have a hard time believing it. Yeah, Um, no. You know, it'll it'll come eventually um, yeah, with enough yeah. work but i think there's a lot of factors that we're not considering as well like things like flavonoids um yes, or yeah, absolutely. Um, and then like different minor cannabinoids or mm-hmm. uh like for example thcp and cbdp the yeah. forals that were just discovered recently like yeah. well they're saying it's 30 times more potent but that's i, w- I don't know if that 30 times is actually uh right. a viable it has, value it has an affinity for cb1 receptors exactly that's 30 exactly times yeah exactly it, it's what's yeah. being quoted online but that's not exactly how that works <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah so um so anyway yeah there's um there's a lot of things that I think cannabis science can do to kind of further determine what the entourage effect actually is like in more detail and what entourages work. Um, but again, without knowing what these other minor components are doing, uh, what these flavonoids are doing, I think also there's the idea of terpene weight, um, Mm -hmm. weighted terpenes, like in the sense that like you could have one small, tiny amount of X terpene that modifies Y terpene significantly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, these are things that people should be thinking about. So that's why I think, you know, doing longer terp or sorry, longer runs, looking at more, a more comprehensive terpene run would be beneficial. Um, because you know, how do you get all these nuanced effects? Like if they have the exact same terpene profile for based on whatever 30 or 20, however many terpenes you're you're testing for. Um, and you know, most of the stuff is type one cannabis that's out there. So Mm -hmm. high THC, little to no CBD, so how do you explain the nuances? Well, I think flavonoids are a part of it and the minor cannabinoids are a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's like over, well over 100 cannabinoids out there. Um, so how do you, you know, whittle that down further? Uh, <laughs> well, you need longer cannabinoid runs that resolve mm-hmm. all those little peaks. Um, yep. And then you need to figure it out. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy, um, but I think, you know, that could explain why these things with very similar chemotypes based on what we, we have um, can still present very different results for different people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something you've you touched on is, you know, producers and educators in the space, all sorts of people that are talking about this, need to be very careful not to base their interpretations of what's going to happen in a complex mixture based off of data generated from research on the isolated components of that mixture you know because like just the whole whole nature the the whole nature of the entourage effect is don't take one isolated component and you know it's the sum of the parts yeah right (laughs) you were talking about a dynamic where yeah the whole is greater than the sum of its parts so is that mcpartland yeah yeah so how mcpartland yeah yeah exactly a great early paper you know pointing this stuff out and you know so you you already are claiming to understand by talking about the entourage effect that you know that a compound is going to act differently in the presence of other compounds. So why in the world would you then 
pull out an isolate study (laughs) right and say that oh this is going to be good for sleep and this will be good for pain and you know and this is going to reduce inflammation we're going to mix them together and it's going to have all these qualities and push it out It, it yeah it just doesn't uh the logic doesn't hold um, well, in these uh, last few minutes here, um, I guess I'll ask you, is there anything that um, we haven't gotten into that you'd like to talk about? And um, if so, let's get into that. And if not, then you have the floor to let people learn about uh, what all you have going on and kind of what's on your horizons and that sort of thing. So I'll just kind of yep. hand this over to you. Yeah, well, so, of course, I've got this new role at Tagleaf as the director of product science, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into that and really just make improvements to the limbs and make sure that labs are running smoothly, and that means integrating all these different parts that haven't been, I guess, as easy for a lot of other software companies to come in and wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I'm definitely actively working towards. I have a lot of different writing uh, projects going on. Um, so a couple different book chapters I'm working on. Um, one is for a textbook called Recent Advances in Cannabis Science. Nice. Um, and that's with uh, Dr. Monica Vielpondo and Dr. Robert Strongen. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with either of them. Dr. Robert mm-hmm. Strongen presented at uh, Emerald actually last week um, and gave a chemistry of vaping talk that was really great. Um, so I'm excited to work with both of them. Monica is amazing at product formulation. That's like her wheelhouse and she does really great work. So, um, both really great people to be working with. Um, and I was also recently invited to write the limbs chapter, um, for cannabis laboratory analysis, which is the first book of its kind, uh, from Springer. Of course, it's a a really big need for that type of a textbook Mm -hmm. out there. Um, that, you know, I was surprised it hasn't come out yet, honestly. Um, so to be, invited to write a chapter for that specifically on the limbs portion is very exciting for me. Um, so I'll be doing a lot of writing. I'll be doing a lot of limbsing. (laughs) Um, and then in just in general, um, I'm excited for the American chemical Society's uh, national meeting here at the end of March. I don't think that, I don't know if this episode is going to come out in that timeframe. It might not. um, Yeah. Yeah. It might not. I think you've got quite a queue going on, but, uh, I'm looking forward to a number of conferences, um, and you know, I really just enjoy getting out there and speaking and talking with people and meeting people, um, especially with the El Soli Award, too. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. I do run the scholarship for cannabis chemists, and um, I'm excited to see what comes for 2021. We've got a new abstract submission system. Um, we've got a whole new scoring rubric this year that we're kind of basing it off of. Um, so I think that this is going to be a lot more of a thorough, um, review, um, of the different applicants. Nice. So, and I think as, and I think this is the fourth year that we've done it. Um, sorry, this is the, we've done four years of the award. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's, um, we named it the El Soli award after the first year. Um, so, so really, um, in this fourth year, I think that we're going to see, um, you know, now that people know about it more, right? Because uh, I'm really a, a one-man marketing team. Well, not one man. <laughs> yeah. There's, but you know, I have the organization behind me. But really, I have driven a lot of the marketing behind Can and you know, getting it the word out. Uh, myself and Ezra, who's uh, you know also a founder of Can and uh, also works on the scholarship committee with me. So we have a lot more bandwidth and more presence now uh, than you know uh, than we did before. 
So, yeah. um, so I think that's really going to bring more attention to the award and get us more quality applicants. Um, yeah. I mean, we've already had some really great winners. Uh, I mean, I'm actually very impressed with this year's cohort. Like, uh, uh, Jarice is actually a student of Strongin's, also doing aerosol chemistry and vaping chemistry. Mm. Um, so he's got a really interesting presentation there. Um, uh, that's one I'm particularly excited about. But um, Dr. Sanghyuk Park, uh, Dr. Marcus Rogan. Um, let's see, there's a couple others here that I'm blanking on. Maybe we can cut that part. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. Uh, there's 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 five winners total, but um, on the fly. But either way, there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff happening there. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'll be excited to follow your journey and see what all um, comes about. It's it's funny that our paths hadn't crossed before now, but I'm I'm glad they have. Honestly, I'm shocked. <laughs> to, to, like, yeah. I mean, I I'm all over the place, uh, especially in the last two years with MG. So I'm I'm kind of surprised that we haven't either. But this has been a really good conversation, man. And um, I, again, I'm really appreciative of the work that you do. Um, and I think you're gathering all the key players and the right ones. And you know, if, you, if there's anyone you want to have on this podcast yes. that you're like, I want to cover this topic, you know, always run it. Feel free to run it by me because. Um, I feel like I've brushed shoulders with a lot of different people in the space that do a lot of amazing things. I've been in a very fortunate position to meet so many great scientists. Yeah. Um, and I think I have a decent enough eye now for betting, you know, who's, you're right. Who's yeah. The, you, yeah. You see enough of the, uh, the charlatans the, out there. You can the spot experts. them quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And anyone who, anyone, anyone who puts cannabis expert on their LinkedIn, I'm already like looking at you like you are suspect, bro. Like, who are you? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's, and usually the ones that are the most problematic are the ones that are yeah flaunting themselves the most. Um, well, and I mean, but... I'm very active on social media. I'm not trying to flaunt. I'm just trying to keep people up to date with what I'm doing. And it's a marketing tool, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. who's going to market yourself but you? Right. Uh, you are your own brand. Um, I, yep. I think a lot of some people have kind of gotten this like feeling that I'm like, you know, some guy who just likes to flaunt. It's like, no, I'm really just passionate and excited. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your content, though, is usually like sharing information or updates about projects or whatever, you know, like they're, I don't view it as flaunting. It's just like, here's, like you said, it's passionate stuff. It's like, here's stuff that's going Here, on. Here's some cool stuff that I thought was interesting that I'd share with the community. Right, yeah, as opposed to like, what I really have in mind are the people that are out there usually trying to knock other people down to try to, show how much more they know you know you have these these people in the industry that just love the opportunity to just chew someone up and spit them out yeah you know that is one thing that i really do want to actually mention to the listeners um mm -hmm. and that is you know and this is a big reason why i'm a part of cam i think that there's far too much mudslinging and bickering Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of this tearing each other down, it's like, you know, hey, if we all put our heads together and work together right. um, as an industry, you know, uh, a rising tide raises all boats. Yes. Um, so if we all work together, then, hey, maybe we stand a chance against the feds actually trying to come in and regulate this thing and crush us and tax us all to death. Um, that's yep. what I'd like to see more in this industry is a lot more collaboration and, you know, a lot more just, um, yeah, really just communication and collaboration between mm -hmm. you know like lab testing labs are a prime example it's like yes oh yeah. you know they got garbage data and they do this and this and they're inflating potency results and it's like well you know if you all played by the rules and all just talk to each other mm -hmm. um maybe there wouldn't be a need for this 
And also that really helps shake out the bad actors because there are plenty yep. of them. I know that. Um, yep. But, you know, it's really just keeping the lines of communication open and being open to collaborating with one another so that we can move the thing forward properly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of that resistance is, you know, part of a fear-based mentality that people are, you know, one thing that I've run into, and I promise I'll wrap this conversation up soon, um, but one thing, a dynamic I've run into, and I'm interested to see if you've run into it too, is particularly in the extraction community, there's a lot of hesitation. Well, it depends on who you talk to. So there's sort of like some very different camps within the extraction community, but there's oh, totally. there's one camp that is very, very resistant to share any information. They view everyone as a competitor um, and are like just really holding everything tight to their chest and trying to, you know, kind of do their own thing, really don't want to collaborate. And I've primarily run into that because I want to interview these people. I'm like, I, I've worked in extraction environments. I have a basic understanding, but I, I don't have nowhere near the wisdom and knowledge that some of these people have been doing it for a decade or more, you know, sometimes multiple decades uh, working in these technologies. Um, and I want to talk to them. And um, for some reason in that realm of things, particularly, um, I get a lot of guarded responses, a lot of hesitation, um, and a lot of fear. And that's changing. Like, I was able to talk to Murphy Murray recently, which was really yeah, nice. Yeah, I saw that. And yeah. Yeah, that was a nice conversation. You know, she was very open. And um, I've talked to a, a few other folks now. Wyeth Callaway with Jetty Extracts is very yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, Wyeth and... is great. Yeah, he's been very helpful to me, too, all throughout, you know, Mike. He's, he's a member of CAN. He's spoken yeah. at CAN uh, before. And, you know, also another guy that I think you might be um, possibly familiar with uh, future 4200 Dustin Powers yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that guy I don't know if you've had a chance to get him on the podcast yet but you know I think he'd be a great addition and he's actually like the antithesis of what you're talking about in yeah. terms of like keeping everything close right to their right chest yeah and like, yeah oh, good who's life gonna gang. find yeah yeah good life gangs it's like share your knowledge I mean knowledge is meant yeah. to be shared um in my opinion um mm -hmm. and you know knowledge is power right um so maybe people don't want you to have that power but I think that that's how we get better products and that's how we advance the industry is people being in the loop of the latest and greatest yeah. and then making new iterations to that. Exactly. And that's yeah. why I think IP also, you know, really kind of stifles things sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause now it's like suddenly I can't work with that or I can't do anything related to that because you simply blocked me out of it. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, intellectual property, while, while it's good for protecting people's interests, it also can stifle creativity and innovation. So, um, you know, I'll end it there, but you know, yeah. I think that there's there's good people everywhere, and there's also bad people everywhere. So you just gotta figure out, you know, who who are the good ones, who are the bad ones, who have the right mentality, yeah, um, to, that are really trying to do good. Um, and I think a lot of these folks that are keeping it close to their chest, they're just really interested in money at the end of the day. Which you know, some of us are interested in money. I'm into it because I'm into cannabis, and I'm into you know, I, I like people. So right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the uh the IP thing, it's Mark Cuban has some really good um there's some good interviews Mark Cuban's done where he talks about um that issue, particularly in the technology space, but how uh patent law and things really um you know, it's become a big game um to try to lock down um technologies, uh, you know, um and it does. It just stifles creativity and and it slows down that progress. rate of evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That rate of progress. Um, and I, you know, I've interacted with people in the cannabis space that take very different approaches. I've 
consulted with clients that have no interest in NDAs or anything. They're like, nah, don't care about any well, of that. Um, you know, well, I think they have a time and a place, you know, if yeah. you have something that you're working on, that's very special and proprietary and you want to keep it under wraps, those are good things to have right now. Do I think that there are people who are litigious and overuse that kind of stuff? Um, you know, I, if, if at all possible, I like to keep the vampires out of my, yeah, my exactly. life. Me too. Lawyers, yeah. you know, like I just, you know, I, I hate litigation. I think it's like the mm -hmm. most, um, you know, counterproductive thing out there. And at the end of the day, what are you doing? You're bleeding each other dry. Exactly. Um, and That's all the is, money yeah. is going to the vampires. So, you know, yep. like at the end of the day, it's a lose lose for everyone except for the lawyers. Yep. Um, so, you know, if at all possible, just keep it civil. Uh, keep that line of communication open. Of course, there's untrustworthy people out there, so go with your gut. If you don't, you know, see if you see something that's a red flag, then of course maybe then you want to consult a lawyer. But um, right. if at all possible, I just try and keep them out. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's my approach too. Just try to maintain good, positive relationships with people, and yeah, communicate and and um, yeah, usually don't have to worry too much about about any of those issues. Um, well, uh, to wrap things up, I, I think the only thing we haven't gone through, um, let people know what some of your, your social media handles are so they can find you. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, I, I've been kind of steering away from Facebook lately. I'm trying to keep that a little more personal, although I do run, uh, cannabis science and chemistry on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a great one to check out if you're just interested in finding literature, sharing it. Um, also ACS can has both a Facebook page and a group. Um, so that's CAN DCHAS for the Division of Chemical Health and Safety, which is which we are a subdivision of. Hopefully soon to mm -hmm. be growing out of that. Um, um, my handle on Instagram is Canna underscore Kaibo. So that's my first mm -hmm. and last name, K-Y-B-O. Um, and then on LinkedIn, uh, it's just my name, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Kyle Boyer. Easy. Nice. Yep, easy. Oh, and I guess I'm on Twitter too. Um, I've got... I'm rarely Twitter. on Twitter. I, I know, yeah. right? For our, for our generation, it's like Twitter. What? what I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> I know, but yeah. uh, but I'm uh, the underscore cannabinerd on Twitter. All right, man. Well, this has been a great conversation. Once again, thanks so much for carving out the time and being willing to chat with me now for over two hours. I really appreciate it. And and stay in touch. Let me know what's what's going on in your world, and let me know if I can ever be of service to you. Absolutely. And thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time as well. And yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, for anyone that wants to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can check out CACpodcast.com. And that's where most of our info will be. And we're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also find um, clips from the interviews as well as other um, educational content that I'm working on on YouTube as well. Just search for curious about cannabis and you'll find us thanks so much for tuning in or watching or however you're experiencing this uh stay curious thanks and take it easy if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on amazon.com and other online book retailers Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world.
Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.